I was recently invited to a Facebook page called Find Baby Ember Sky. I recall running across this story sometime before we started producing California Dreaming, but since I've recently been reminded of it, I wanted to take a look into the story a little bit more. And from what I could see, there seems to be a great deal of misinformation out there. I was going to try to sort through this as best I could, and I did, in fact, record and upload the episode, which I had set to go live Wednesday morning this week. But I decided to go ahead and reach out to the family or the person behind the Facebook page that's dedicated to Ember. And fortunately for us, they responded pretty quickly and were supportive of my telling of the story on our show. I sent them an advanced copy of the episode, and they were able to clear up some things that I had gotten wrong or misunderstood. So I am re-recording the entire episode with much more information this time, and the facts according to the person I spoke with over Facebook. So, let's get started again. Jamie and Matthew Graham had somewhat of a roller coaster of a marriage. Like most relationships, it had its ups and downs, but the couple did have one bright spot in their relationship. When their new baby came along in 2015, baby Ember Sky Graham. She was the center of the family, doted on by both her mother, her father, and her grandparents. She did have some medical issues where she needed to take medication to control seizures, but otherwise, she was by all accounts a happy, smiley, jovial baby girl. But according to Matthew's family, when he wasn't busy taking care of baby Ember, he was known to be somewhat of a party animal. He had a penchant for drinking and smoking marijuana. Anything more than that isn't really known. And his wife would also describe him as somewhat impulsive, sometimes just wanting to up and leave the marriage, and it was this constant back and forth between him and Jamie. Eventually, seemingly wanting to get his life on track, he seemed to be holding down steady work. He had cleared up a DUI conviction, and he decided to move in with a cousin. I have since learned that Matthew did move on to his cousin's property, and it is not clear if she owns the property, but she lived in a main trailer on it, and Matthew lived in a smaller trailer located about 10 feet away from hers. So then on a night in early July of 2015, Matthew picked up baby Ember for a night over at his house. It was not unusual for her to stay over with him at least once, maybe twice a week, according to mom. Now, since I originally wrote this story, I did get in contact with that person at the Facebook page. And unfortunately, I don't know who it is that I talked to. I did ask if it was mom and the answer was no, but I don't know, which is fine. So hopefully the information that I got is accurate and truthful. So I've since been told that the reason Matthew had Ember over was because Jamie was at home packing. She and Ember were, in fact, going to move in with Matthew into the trailer that I mentioned a moment ago. They were together at the time of Ember's disappearance, and they had plans to eventually find a place of their own sometime in the near future. So according to Matthew, he said that at approximately 10.30 that night that he picked up baby Ember, he went to sleep in his own bed, 
only a few feet away from his daughter. But when he awoke the next morning, Ember was gone. He described going into a full-blown panic. He ran into the front room of the home and no baby. He called his mom and she described him as overwhelmed with emotion, racked with fear as he frantically searched the home for his infant daughter. Matthew called 911 and police soon arrived at the home and shortly after them, Jamie arrived as well. But to her, Matthew didn't appear to be as hysterical as she thought he should have been or as hysterical as his mother had described. To her, he kind of appeared to be distraught, but it felt a little disingenuous to her, like he was pretending. He appeared to be crying, but she would describe it as more of a forced type of whining. And in the moment, she found herself just as confused about everything that was going on around her. But to her, either one of two things happened. Ember was either quietly spirited away from her crib while her dad slept a few feet away, or there was something that Matthew wasn't divulging. Searchers set out to scour the areas surrounding the home where Ember was last seen. The media descended upon the small town of Happy Valley, California, located in Shasta County. And as the time ticked by, the suspicions surrounding Matthew slowly began to grow. And the problem was, he wasn't exactly the most well-liked guy in town. It seemed he had crossed a lot of people. And according to his dad, everyone had a story to tell about the guy. Matthew either stole money from them, or he stole property from them, or he constantly owed people money. At the time, he just had a lot of people that were mad at him. So when his baby went missing on his watch, people weren't exactly jumping into his corner to lend support. Rather, they were pointing fingers and whispering hushed rumors. And police didn't think Matthew's story made any sense when he explained the events leading up to him discovering his daughter missing. There was something in particular that stood out the afternoon before baby Ember went missing. It was this errand that he apparently went on that had investigators' interest piqued. The errand was strange. Let me explain. Matthew told his cousin that he was going to make a quick trip up to the gas station, asking her if she needed him to grab anything from the convenience store. So he took off with Ember in her baby car seat carrier. He made the five-minute drive over to the gas station, and he is seen on surveillance video footage parking his truck. He exited from his vehicle, and he took the baby carrier out. You can clearly see he has Ember with him. He picked up a few items from the convenience store, paid, and then exited the store. He placed the baby carrier back into his truck and drove away. But here's the thing. He did not head in the direction of his home, instead heading the opposite direction towards the Clear Creek Water Tower, and his whereabouts would be unknown for approximately one hour. Now, according to the email I received from the person on Ember's Facebook page, 
Matthew apparently pumped gas before he left on that hour-long mystery errand. And I was told that investigators made that drive that Matthew described that he said that he made. And it only took them 10 minutes at normal driving speeds. He was questioned about the drive, taking him in the opposite direction of his home. And he explained that he was driving Ember around in order to get her to settle down and to doze off for a nap. Now, the person that I was in contact with on Ember's Facebook page called this into question, pointing out that it seemed clear that Ember appeared to be calm and relaxed in her car seat in that video surveillance, which I would agree. If you go on YouTube and you search for the story on Crime Watch Daily, you can see the video footage for yourself and come to your own conclusions. But then when investigators continue reviewing surveillance footage from that convenience store, they saw Matthew's truck drive past again in the range of that same camera, but this time he was headed in the direction of his home. He was questioned as to what he was doing during that one hour time span between the time he stopped at the store until the time he was seen driving past it again, but he said that he did not remember what he did. And it is not clear if he had Ember in the car with him still. It was impossible to tell from the vantage point of the camera. In the meantime, Ember's mom, Jamie, is making impassioned pleas to the media for anybody who might know where her daughter is to please come forward with information. And investigators officially named Matthew a person of interest in the disappearance of his daughter. But his cousin would come forward and claim that she did see baby Ember later that afternoon following that hour-long errand he ran that he claims that he doesn't remember what he did. She said she clearly saw the baby being held by her dad. Even Jamie was defending Matthew as she does not want to believe he would do anything in any way to harm her. And she was becoming increasingly frustrated at least early on because police were focusing their investigation on him when she felt that there were other avenues that they should be exploring. But investigators were convinced that somewhere along that stretch of road near the Clear Creek water tower that Matthew did something to baby Ember or something happened to her. So, on an unrelated drug charge, police placed him under arrest while they continued to search for the missing infant. And while he was in custody, they interrogated him about baby Ember in an attempt to elicit any kind of information from him. The interrogation of Matthew went on for eight hours, and there was not one single bit of information that he offered that was helpful in finding out what may have happened to Ember. But also, investigators noted that there was something else Matthew didn't do. He never asked about the investigation. He never asked what efforts were underway in the search for his daughter. And he never asked if they were making any progress or if they had any solid leads come in. He never asked. Not once. And before long, Jamie began doubting Matthew's story as well, as nothing that he was saying was making any kind of sense. And then, as the ground search was underway, they discovered a pacifier along the side of the road, several miles further 
than where Matthew had indicated that he had driven the day before his daughter supposedly went missing from her crib. The pacifier was tested for DNA and it turned out to be embers. And the spot where the pacifier was found was really out in the middle of nowhere. And it pretty much confirmed, at least for her mom, that Ember had been out there. But why? And where was she now? So what was reported in the media was in light of this new piece of evidence found, investigators wanted to interrogate Matthew once again, but this information, as it turns out, was inaccurate as well. The information I received from the person I spoke to from the Facebook page said what actually happened was Matthew was going over to the police station for his regularly scheduled probation check-in. That was the appointment that he was keeping. News reports said that he was going over there to talk to them after the discovery of the pacifier, but that wasn't true. It was just as he and his mom were either headed out or about to arrive for the probation check-in when Matthew received the call that searchers found Amber's pacifier along the route that he had driven her the day that he ran that errand. So it was when he got there to check in with his probation officer that he decided to flee. Mom had parked her vehicle in some shade and said that she would wait for him while he went in. However, in light of the discovery of the pacifier, Matthew fled from the area on foot. Ostensibly, Mom was stunned at what her son was doing, and she apparently went in to check her handbag and found that two things were missing. $400 in cash and a fully loaded pistol. Let me stop here for a moment because I kind of want to interject my opinion. But when I heard this, a red flag went up for me. I can clearly see from what I've watched on the news and shows about this that Matthew's mother is clearly distraught as to what's gone on with her granddaughter and now her son being looked at hard as a person of interest in her granddaughter's disappearance. But I found it kind of odd that she happened to have the money and the gun, a couple of things Matthew could probably use to flee from the area, at least for a little while. Maybe she carries that kind of money and a fully loaded weapon in her purse around all the time. But as her purse is sitting next to her, could she not see her son digging through her bag and taking those things? I don't know. I feel kind of bad thinking that because I don't know if it's true or not. And I could be very, very wrong about this. And my heart goes out to her for the pain that she was going through. But I also don't doubt a mother's desire to want to help her son, who appears to be growing increasingly more desperate as police continue to ratchet up the pressure. And in a television interview, Ember's mom would share the same sentiment, that his mom having the $400 and a gun was clearly a plan to help Matthew flee from police because they knew that he was going to go back to jail and this was never going to be over until he divulged the truth as to what happened to his daughter. Police immediately went searching for Matthew and listed him as armed and dangerous. It was then his mother realized that his life was truly in danger because now 
knowing that he was armed, police could just very well shoot him. And now that I had this new information that Matthew was scheduled to check in with his probation officer when he received word that baby Ember's pacifier had been found, it kind of leads me to believe that the plan to run, the $400 in cash, and the loaded pistol was potentially all a part of a premeditated plan to flee from the area. Again, this is only speculation on my part, because we can't possibly know what was going on in his mind. But once he was told the pacifier contained DNA that matched Ember, he may have panicked and decided to run. And like I mentioned a moment ago, Mom may have very well been wanting to help her son by providing him with the money and the gun. She didn't tell it that way, but it doesn't feel like a coincidence. And I can't blame her for wanting to help him. He was probably very desperate and scared and distraught. And no mother wants to see their child in that kind of pain. I get it. I can't say that I wouldn't want to do the same thing, but I don't know. I've never been put in a tough position like that before. Police contacted Jamie and her family to warn them about Matthew and that it might be best to not go home until they locate him. He might show up at their house. Matthew was spotted at a nearby Burger King, but he fled once again on foot before authorities could get there. A short time later, Matthew carjacked someone at gunpoint, taking their car and headed north on the 5 freeway. But unbeknownst to Matthew, the vehicle that he stole was outfitted with GPS, so they had no trouble tracking his movements. Meanwhile, Matthew's mom is at home listening to her police scanners to listen in on what's going on with the hunt for her son. She used to work for the Shasta County Sheriff's Department, so she still was able to access their radio frequencies. And it was on the police scanners that she heard police had Matthew blocked in in the tiny town of Dunsmuir, California, which is located in Siskiyou County. He barricaded himself in a detached garage while the owners of the home and the surrounding neighbors barricaded themselves inside their homes too, as a standoff had just begun on their quiet little street. As Matthew's mother is listening, this is what she heard coming over the crackle of the radio. Shots fired. They next called for paramedics, and then they canceled the paramedics. The information that I found in reports online indicated that police made the decision to open fire on Matthew. He had his pistol in his hand. Officers reported that they could see it shimmering from where they were standing, and then they heard a gunshot, so they returned fire. I have since been told by the person close to the case that I spoke to about this that the reports online and in the news are inaccurate. I was sent a link to Siskiyou County District Attorney's findings in the officer-involved shooting that took place on July 13, 2005 with Matthew. I'm going to read you a good portion of the report that I was sent, as there is some false information out there about this incident. Regarding the fatal officer-involved shooting of Matthew Ryan Graham on July 13, 2015, I have reviewed the reports and materials including forensic, scientific, 
and toxicological materials compiled by Special Agent Heather Nelson of the California Department of Justice concerning the fatal shooting of Matthew Ryan Graham at approximately 7.45 a.m. on July 13, 2015. The final item was the medical legal autopsy report dated April 12, 2016 and received a week later. I have reviewed and considered all of the evidence, though only a small portion is referred to herein. Factual Summary Reports indicate that Matthew Ryan Graham was, as of July 13, 2015, a person of interest in the disappearance of his six-month-old daughter, Ember Graham, who he had reported missing on July 2, 2015 in Shasta County. Matthew Graham was prominently featured in heavy local publicity surrounding the disappearance of his daughter. On July 11, 2015, a relative of Matthew Graham called law enforcement to report that Matthew had stolen from them a 40 Springfield handgun. In addition, Matthew Graham failed to report to the Shasta County Probation Department on that same date. Law enforcement sought to arrest Graham for these violations beginning in the afternoon of July 11th. On July 13th, Matthew Graham was still at large, though sightings by various citizens had been confirmed in the Shasta County area. At approximately 6.30 a.m. on July 13th, Matthew committed a carjacking by taking a vehicle at gunpoint from the victim's home in Shasta Lake City. The gun used matched the description of the handgun that he had previously stolen. Within the hour, Matthew was located by satellite using a tracking feature in the stolen vehicle. Officers were eventually prompted to a location near the intersection of Catherine Street and Francis Street in Densmer, Siskiyou County, California. Officers from several Shasta and Siskiyou County agencies converged on the site and an active search ensued. Shasta County Deputy Fleming was utilizing his canine partner, who had obtained a strong scent at the stolen vehicle and was approaching a garage on Francis Street with other officers nearby. As they approached the garage opening, a single gunshot was discharged from within the garage. Officers responded with a volley of gunfire into the garage and then took position outside of the garage while issuing commands to Matthew Graham, who could still not be seen due to the near-complete darkness of the garage and a sport utility vehicle that was parked inside, taking up almost all the interior garage space. Unknown to the officers at the time, Graham had discharged the firearm at himself, likely by putting his head back and firing upward through the underside of his chin. According to the medical examiner, this self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, due to its trajectory, was not immediately fatal or incapacitating. Ballistics testing would later definitively match this expended bullet to the firearm Matthew Graham had stolen earlier and had on his person at the time. Adding to the confusion was the fact that Deputy Fleming suffered a non-gunshot injury during this time and many officers on the scene believed that he had been shot as they observed him retreat to get care for his wound. Approximately five minutes later, after countless commands from officers to give up and come out, Matthew Graham was seen moving towards the garage door on the left side of the vehicle. He was on his knees and his hands forward and extended. He was holding an item in his right hand, 
that did not appear to be a weapon. While moving out of the garage, his shirt moved up as to expose a small portion of the area above his belt, where some officers observed a small bulge. At the time, one officer saw the butt of a gun in Matthew Graham's waistband and alerted the other officers. At the same time, another officer was able to see the same handgun extending from his waistband and loudly announced gun in waistband several times. Graham exited the garage and laid prone on the road directly in front of the garage as he was commanded to do. As a contact team was being selected to take Graham into custody, they were seen on video to lower their firearms as they prepared to advance under the cover of other officers on Matthew Graham. Matthew Graham then pushed himself up from the ground with both arms and then came to his knees with his left hand still reaching to the ground. Officers were heard loudly shouting instructions to not go for the gun, to stay down, and to keep his hands up. The contact team was seen again bringing their weapons to bear. After a brief hesitation, Matthew Graham clearly reached his right hand for the firearm in his waistband, even taking effort to reach below his shirt hanging over the waistband area. Twelve law enforcement officers fired their weapons, virtually simultaneously, and Matthew Graham died in the volley before he was able to pull his firearm completely out of the holster that had been in his waistband and oriented for a right-handed draw. At this point, the report goes into the laws that allow for peace officers to use deadly force to protect themselves from the threat of death or great bodily injury, as well as the laws of self-defense that are available to all persons, including peace officers, and the laws that allow for justifiable homicide. In conclusion, having reviewed the statements of every witness and every officer, I find the consistency between them to be remarkable. This is further striking given that many of the officers from different agencies did not know each other, not even the names of those they trusted to support them in this dangerous environment. Aside from the physical evidence and witness statements, I have been aided chiefly by two video recordings. One shows the officers to the north at the time of the shooting and has a clear audio portion. Repeated commands and gun in the waistband are clearly repeatedly heard upon Matthew Graham exiting the garage. This video and audio clearly establish that Matthew Graham initially complied with commands and then ceased to comply. The fatal volley followed heightened commands when Matthew Graham began to reach for his gun, putting the officers' lives in danger and necessitating the use of deadly force. The second video was the MVARS, which stands for Mobile Video and Audio Recording System, dash-mounted camera on the California Highway Patrol vehicle, which had been advanced towards the garage to offer cover to the officers minutes before the fatal volley. In this video, the camera detail is insufficient to record the presence of the gun or even the blood that was coursing from the wound to Matthew Graham's face and neck area. But Matthew Graham can clearly be seen exiting the garage and the area between his shirt and the waistline of his pants is clearly, if briefly, visible. Matthew Graham is then seen to lie prone on the ground, push himself up by his hands to a kneeling position, 
and then reach under his shirt directly for his gun. When the gunshots ceased, officers are seen securing the garage while leaving Matthew Graham's face-down body untouched but attended. His body was rolled onto his back, and the 40 Springfield with the serial number matching that gun that he had stolen two days earlier was recovered from his front waistband area by an independent investigator some 55 minutes after he had been shot and killed. Given the circumstances known to the officers that Matthew Graham was a person of interest in a potential murder case, was exhibiting desperate behavior, had a stolen firearm, had used the firearm to commit a violent and desperate crime, had fired the firearm in close proximity to investigating officers, had placed the easily accessible firearm in an unsecured holster in his waistband area, observed by many officers as a bulge, one as the butt of the handgun, and one as the handgun, and that gun in waistband was announced and heard by many officers, that Matthew Graham initially complied with commands and then unambiguously acted in direct contravention to the commands, exposing some officers to danger at the expectation that he was surrendering and was immediately given commands not to reach for the waistband area, to go back to the ground and to move his hands. The use of deadly force on the part of all 12 officers who fired their weapons was clearly justified. And then the report goes on to list each of the officers and their role in this encounter with Matthew. Accordingly, the use of deadly force was justified and each of the officers named who fired his weapon during the volleys of gunfire described herein are discharged and clear from criminal liability in this matter. This concludes this inquiry into the lawfulness of the officer's action in this matter. I wish them all well after their tragic involvement with Mr. Graham. I also wish the loved ones of Mr. Graham well and express condolences to all involved. Very truly yours, Kirk Andrus, District Attorney. And with that, Matthew was gone. And if he had any knowledge as to the whereabouts of baby Ember Sky or what happened to her, he took those secrets to the grave. So investigators decided that they needed to turn up the heat on anyone and everyone who interacted with Matthew on or around the day that baby Ember went missing. That's all they can do since Matthew died in that shootout with law enforcement. They are hoping that he said something to someone or someone knows more than they are letting on because they're trying to protect him. And as Jamie sees it, that's the only thing Matthew's family really cared about, making sure that they did everything in their power to cover for Matthew, that finding baby Ember wasn't really their priority. And she thinks his cousin specifically, the one who was living on the property with him when Ember vanished, that she knows more than she's letting on. It's Jamie's contention that his cousin was lying when she claimed to have seen baby Ember the afternoon Matthew came back from that bizarre errand of his. So there's this one part of the story that's a little bit confusing. Well, a lot of the story is confusing, but... The report online said that Ember's mom, Jamie, claimed that Matthew told her that he did not bring baby Ember back home. The person I spoke to from Ember's Facebook page told me that Jamie is not claiming that he never brought Ember back from the convenience store 
or from that errand. Matthew's cousin said that he brought Ember into her house after the trip to the store, but Matthew himself said that he did not bring Ember into her house, that supposedly he left Ember in his smaller trailer while he went over to hers. This seems to be at the heart of the issue when it comes to Matthew's cousin's statements to investigators and to the media. When I first read about this, the cousin having confirmed that she saw Matthew with Ember following his trip to the convenience store, I was under the impression that they resided in the same trailer. But since then, I have received information that they lived in two separate trailers on the same property. So the question lingers. Was baby Ember still with Matthew when he arrived home from the store? He said that he left her in his trailer and went into his cousin's without Ember. His cousin has said in no uncertain terms that he had baby Ember in his arms when he arrived back. So somebody is mistaken. But Ember's mom, Jamie, feels as though Matthew's cousin has come forward with the claim that she saw Ember with Matthew in order to create an alibi for him. But as far as his cousin is concerned, that's her story and she's sticking to it. And I'm certainly in no position to make any kind of accusations regarding this cousin of his. This could be how she honestly remembers things, I don't know. But Jamie is certain that Matthew's family knows more than they're willing to admit to. She even thinks that they likely know exactly where Ember is or what became of her. But if they do, they are not talking. Also, as I was researching this from what I read and saw online, there had been no mention of Ember's car seat. And I actually hadn't really thought about it when I first put the story together. I think I jumped to the conclusion that the car seat was missing along with baby Ember discarded somewhere out near where her pacifier was discovered. But I've since been told that her car seat was found in Matthew's trailer, which would make sense. He would have to bring it back with him, with or without Ember, if he did have something to do with her having gone missing. His story would have to be that he came home that afternoon, went to bed later that night, and woke up the next morning and she was gone. The car seat had to be there, either in the trailer or in his truck, right? Well, going back to what we just talked about, Matthew having supposedly left baby Ember in his trailer while he went over to his cousin's trailer when he arrived back from the convenience store. Is that something that he would have done? Would Matthew have left the baby unattended in her car seat in his trailer while he went over to his cousin some 10 feet away or so? Yeah, it's plausible, especially if she were asleep in the seat, right? But was baby Ember in the car seat when he placed it in the trailer? Did he do something with baby Ember before returning home, arriving only with her car seat, leaving it in his trailer, going over to talk to his cousin, and possibly telling her that Ember was asleep in her seat in his trailer? And this is why his cousin is adamant that the baby was there that afternoon. Maybe she didn't physically see Ember, but truly believed that she was there, and that is what the truth is, 
as she sees it. So there is the possibility that as Matthew slept that night with Ember's crib beside him a few feet away, that she was somehow kidnapped without him ever being aroused by any noise or commotion. According to Matthew's cousin, police came inside, they brought dogs in, they gathered whatever evidence they needed, but it didn't seem like they found anything that indicated a crime or any kind of foul play took place within the confines of the trailer where they lived. Police believed that it would be very rare and unusual for a stranger to break into a trailer and steal a baby as well. In addition, the home is surrounded by two fences and they have two dogs in the yard and the room where baby Amber was asleep in, the door was broken. So it would have needed to be pried, which would have caused some noise. And besides, Law enforcement doesn't really seem to think that whatever happened to baby Ember happened inside that trailer. They think something happened out in the desolate area where her pacifier was found. But Matthew's family did hire a private investigator to try to figure out what happened on their own, since police were so razor-focused on Matthew. And now that he's dead, they're at somewhat of an impasse and the private investigator seems as baffled as the next person. They don't know if they're looking at a homicide, or maybe it was an accident. Maybe baby Ember wasn't given the proper dosage of her medication and had a seizure on Matthew's watch. Maybe he panicked, not really knowing what he should do. Whatever the case, it's going to take time for that private investigator to track down any leads that happen to come his way. And as for Ember's mom, she understands the very real possibility that Ember may no longer be alive, but she continues to hold out hope. She continues to believe that Matthew's mother and his cousin have more information that they aren't sharing with law enforcement, and she just hopes that they step up and be truthful about what they know. But if they know anything, they aren't speaking up, and it's now been over three years since baby Ember was last seen. So dreamers, what do you all listening think happened to baby Ember? If I had to decide which scenario was most likely, I would have to say that Matthew had something to do with her having gone missing. I don't think that she was abducted from her crib while Matthew slept a few feet away. I don't like to think that Matthew would do something on purpose to maliciously cause any harm to his infant daughter. I would be more inclined to believe something accidentally happened with Ember seizure medications. Maybe he forgot, or maybe he didn't administer enough, and maybe she had a seizure and didn't recover from it. Maybe he didn't notice or he was distracted, and by the time he did, it was too late. And then maybe he panicked. I really can't wrap my head around why he wouldn't just attempt to rush her to the hospital or call 911 or in some capacity attempt to render aid if she had gone unconscious or stopped breathing. But he didn't do any of that. From all of the circumstances surrounding the events leading up to her having been reported missing, his odd road trip the afternoon before, 
the pacifier being found a little bit further than where he said he drove. Matthew not remembering why he drove out that direction after he stopped at that convenience store. His dodginess with police. His seeming lack of concern or remorse for his baby having gone missing. And then the attempt to flee with that $400 and a loaded pistol. Carjacking that vehicle from its owners at gunpoint. All the way up until he was cornered. And ultimately killed in that shootout with police. All of that feels like the actions of an incredibly desperate man carrying around a very heavy burden. But now his family are the ones left to carry it for him. Do they know more than they're letting on? I don't think we'll ever know. Matthew's mother She lost her granddaughter and then her son. And his cousin? Well, who knows? It seemed like all she wanted to do was help Matthew. He certainly did not need to drag her into all of this. Ultimately, whatever those two women do know, there likely isn't much that can be done now anyway. If they were trying to protect Matthew in life, they're now just trying to protect his memory. Does he even deserve that? It's not for me to say. And I don't think that they're ever going to feel compelled to ease Jamie's mind by divulging anything they might possibly know just so they can keep Matthew's name and reputation intact as much as possible. I guess we can only hope that maybe someday some answers will come. Maybe someone will come forward. Maybe someone will find some clues that will lead to some answers. But for now, baby Ember Sky remains missing. Ember vanished on July 2, 2015 from Happy Valley, California. She was six months old at the time of her disappearance. She was wearing a size 2 Kirkland brand diaper. She is Caucasian and has brown hair and distinctively shaped brown eyes. She was approximately 15 pounds and 2 feet 1 inch tall. She was epileptic and required medication to control her seizures. Anyone with information regarding the disappearance of baby Ember is encouraged to call one 800 843 5678 or the Shasta County Sheriff's Office at area code 530-245-6025. You can remain anonymous and according to the Find Baby Ember Facebook page, which seems to be pretty active, there remains a $10,000 reward for any information leading to her whereabouts. And as of this recording, as far as I know, the information outside of my own conjecture is accurate and up-to-date. If you know any of the information that I missed or got wrong, please contact me via Facebook on the California Dreaming Facebook page. I'm on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. You can contact me through our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com 
or you may contact me directly at my email, californiapod at yahoo.com. And it's spelled K-I-L-L-A-F-O-R-N-I-A. And I will certainly update this story with any necessary corrections. And whoever it was over at the Find Baby Ember Sky Facebook page who responded to my messages and provided me with more clarity when it came to this tragic story, thank you. I think I speak for all of us listening when I say that you and your family and baby Ember are in our thoughts and we hope someday you will find some answers. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this bonus episode on the disappearance of baby Ember. Until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>